Please welcome Cara Cooney, everybody. Dr. Cara Cooney. What up, y'all? It's your guy Emmanuel checking in here. Episode 103 of Socks and Sandals is about to begin, but before we jump into it, I have a few questions for you. Do you have some debt that you need to pay off? Do you want to travel more this year? Is that one of your goals for 2019? Are you unsure about what you're going to do with your time now that the football season is over and the NBA playoffs have not yet started? And it's just dry when it comes to sports on the weekends. Or are you tired of having a boss telling you when and where to be somewhere? Or are you a college student and you just need to make some money when you got some spare time because money is short. I know how it is in college, man. It's rough. But look, check this out. You can become a driver for Lyft today. Lyft has a $1,300 guarantee when you give 135 rides in your first 30 days when you use the promo code Emmanuel 32 636 once again emmanuel 32636 let's say in your first 30 days you only had 1100 in fares once you hit that 135th ride you will get that 200 given to you from lyft because it's a 1300 guarantee but more than likely you'll surpass that when you hit 135 rides so try it out um let me know how it works out for you hit me up SX, SNDLS, Emmanuel since 85 on Instagram. Hit my DMs and let me know how that worked out for you. Once again, use the promo code Emmanuel32636. And without further ado, episode 103. Come on, everybody. All right, I want to welcome you all back to the Socks and Sandals podcast, where society, culture, history, and religion collide, and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. It's your guy, Emmanuel. I'm back in the kitchen. I'm whipping it up, and I have a very special, extremely special guest with me. Um, this guest is a world-renowned Egyptologist. She has received a Ph.D. in Egyptology from Johns Hopkins University. She has curated Egyptian art exhibits all around the world. She spent many years in Egypt as an archaeologist working at various excavations. She is the associate professor of ancient Egyptian art and architecture, chair of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at UCLA. Miss Kara, I'm sorry, Dr. Kara Cooney. Kara, say hello to the people. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Um, I'm thrilled, and it's funny how, how we met, right? You were, yes. Yeah, yeah you're, you're willing to give that information up. I'll let you. Oh, yeah, for sure. So okay, basically, sure. Kara and I met when I was uh, doing Uber or Lyft. I don't know which one I was using at the time. It was Uber. It was Uber. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was, that was amazing. We struck up a conversation, and uh, here we are. <laughs> I know. How funny. I've ever I've done lots of podcasts, but I've never gotten a podcast by being um, an Uber passenger. So I think this is quite special. Yes, and I'm thrilled. I'm yeah. thrilled. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate you making it happen, and all the emails that we exchanged. Here we are. We finally made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or so. Um, really quickly, Kara, just um, tell the people you know a little bit more about who you are, 
where you're from and how you got into Egyptology. Yeah, sure thing. I um, teach at UCLA, as, as you um, ably pointed out, and I have a ton of grad students, so I'm training the next generation of, of Egyptologists, whatever Egyptology ends up becoming. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Texas and Houston, of all places, so hey. who, who knew that I was going to end up being an Egyptologist, that, that this, this um, strange way of thinking 3,000 years in the past or 4,000 years in the past, right. depending on what part of ancient Egypt I pick, right. helps me to understand the world around me better, but it, it does. Mm-hmm. And so, I, um, yeah, I find myself to be quite lucky, quite um, privileged to be able to to study these people and, and bring them to the world. And I and I engage in a lot of popular writing, so I just had a book come, and I'm not doing this to show. <laughs> Word. The book, the book that just came out is called When Women Ruled the World, and the reason I mention it is because it is unusual for a university professor to write for a popular audience, and I get a lot of flack for that. So why, why purpose, is that? But I feel it should be done. Yeah. Um, people want you to be, I just went up for my promotion to full professor, and there were grumbles um, in the halls, though I heard not in the formal meeting mm. about the nature of two out of three of my books, that they were for a popular audience and they're not scholarly and, um, and, and thus don't have the same weight and merit as other work. And um, I just kind of sat on the sidelines and let the work speak for itself. But it's interesting to see the academy you know, a bunch of professors, a bunch of thinkers, a bunch of intellectuals, not all of them, but many of them, more interested in talking to each other and not interested in talking to the wider public. And I don't get it. I really don't. Yeah, that's that's a little wild. But, you know, appreciate you for stepping out of that box and just making things accessible and entertaining for people, because, I mean, everyone isn't everyone can't go to UCLA. <laughs> and so yeah. therefore, you know, you got to make everything accessible to everyone else so that we can kind of get a little glimpse into what you guys are studying. Yeah, absolutely. Getting into UCLA, even as a California resident, is incredibly hard. Work. And, you know, super competitive. And thank God we have the Cal States and other UCs to make up for that. I mean, we have one of the best and only remaining still public university systems serving our public mm. here in California. And so I'm, I'm also very proud to serve in that in that university system. It's a great thing. Definitely. Well, congrats on you know that book, because when Women Ruled the World, that just came out a couple months ago, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, with National Geographic, yeah. Yes, awesome. So how has the reception of that been so far? It's been good. And, you know, I've been doing lots of public speaking. That's how I met you. I was doing a talk in Portland on, on that subject. Yes. And, and I keep traveling around the, the United States. <clears throat> it's not a global audience at this point. And it's also National Geographic who's booking these things. So it's more of a, a United States um, topic and question about female power. Yes. Why we are so hostile to it. Mm. Um why the ancient Egyptians were a little bit different and and trying to, to use the Egyptians to help us understand ourselves. I mean, that's always my way of trying to make the, the ancient world relevant. Egypt is a really extraordinary gift because it's 3,000 years of human behavior, of human action, mm. with the same general religious system, uh, government system, language system over that time. And I can watch booms and busts, prosperity and collapse, and all of the human reactions to it, which in many ways makes me a comparative thinker, but also a bit of a prognosticator. So I can look at what people have done for thousands of years in this one place, and then look around at at ourselves and and see how we're going to react. And I I have a better insight than people who are not historians. Mm, That's a fact. 
uh, some more insight that you have is a book that you wrote, um, The Woman Who Would Be King in Hot Shepsuit. Am I saying it right? You said it right. Yeah. Let's go. First time. Her her <laughs> rise to power in ancient Egypt. So um, I had never heard of her until I started, you know, researching you. And I seen the many appearances on the Craig Ferguson show. And, and one of the shows, you know, he was talking about the book. You guys were talking about the book. So just tell the folks here that's listening a little bit more about Hot Shepsut and, and what she did back in Egypt. Well, you, you've heard of Cleopatra, right? For sure, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and you've heard of somebody like Jezebel. You've heard of that name. Oh, yeah, Jezebel yeah. is like the, one of the main females they talk in the, about in the Bible from the Old Testament. Right. Yeah. Well, so one of the main points that I make in the book is that the failures amongst the female rulers are remembered in our cultural memory. We have Shakespeare writing plays about them. We, we mm. know their names, mm. and we like to think of them as cautionary tales. Cleopatra did not leave Egypt better than she found it. She commits suicide supposedly at the end. She gets beaten by the Romans and her family for all but one are hunted down and, and murdered by Octavian who wins. And, and we think of her as that tragic female figure who gets it all wrong. And Hatshepsut, who ruled for 22 years altogether, uh, set up her family dynasty for success and and saved it from from ending yeah she did everything right she left egypt better than she found it and she is forgotten she is not a part of our cultural memory you're thrilled when you can pronounce her name right most people <laughs> don't even try and that's can. a fact yeah and so the success is a very interesting thing particularly for female power it's not something that we associate with female power just naturally and it's something that we very much ignore and we do so quite systematically we often take the things that a female ruler has done right, and be because it's something that we expect, it's traditional, it's what you're supposed to do, we reassign it to other people, or right after they rule, and in Hatshepsut's case, this absolutely happened, they take the things that she did right, and they just take out her name and put mm. in the name of her husband, or put in the name of her father, and they reassign all of that success, all of that good stuff, to somebody else, and then she is removed from our cultural memory. History books are rewritten, mm -hmm. and we don't even know that these women did amazing things. So it's my job to resurrect this woman, to resuscitate her, if you like, and For sure. put her back out into the public memory. Man, yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like I never heard that name ever, <laughs> you know. And and when it comes to Egypt, now the I I was telling you, you know, when we met. Um, I had a, a few episodes that I did with someone who was like a facilitator of a comedic community. All right. Yeah, and yeah. so um, he taught he taught me a lot about the comedic way in, in Egypt. But I was thinking about when I heard about Hatshepsut, I was like, OK, he said that the role of the pharaoh in Egypt was like they are the living embodiment of Horus or Asar. Okay. So how did Hatshepsut as a woman fit into that paradigm for them? Hatshepsut could fit it. The ancient Egyptians named her king. That's why the title of my book is not the woman who would be queen. It's kind of a take on that, right? Mm. It's a woman who would be king. Mm. When a woman reached position as the highest ruler of state, the Egyptians called her king. The word queen for them in their Egyptian language connoted nothing more than being a sexual helpmate or wife of the king. Mm. So if they use the word king, I'm going to use the word king and present her in that light. And the Egyptians were very creative in being able to gender bend this position to fit a woman. Mm. 
Mm. And Hatshepsut does not hide her femininity, and she's very clear to call herself Sat Ray, the daughter of Ray, instead of Sa Ray, the son of Ray. And Nesut is it doesn't necessarily need to be feminized. That's the word for king. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are elements, there are places where you can see that she has feminized her kingship in the grammar, in the word itself. Mm-hmm. And so Egypt was able to make her into like you know, like there's Smurf and Smurfette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Egyptians did the same. They added a T to feminize something. This is a, a typical language feature. And so you mentioned the goddess Horus, hair, um, as written in the hieroglyphs. Um, mm-hmm. There are places where you can see a hairette, uh, a female version of, of that Horus, that embodiment of the divinity on earth. And the female could fit into that role as well. So the Egyptians accounted for this, and they, they used the, the religion to help fit the females into those roles. But even though they had all this flexibility and all of this religious power and sophistication, when it comes down to the practicalities of human politics, we still organically remove those women soon after the fact. We allow them in ancient Egypt to step in as power holders. But as soon as we can go back to the typical patriarchal system, we do. And um, that, for me, is the is the tragedy of the whole system. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, you said that basically she did everything right. And that was kind of one of the reasons why just patriarchy wanted to erase her. Um, but do you find it strange that she didn't place women in prominent roles while she ruled or, or did she? She did try with her daughter, Nefere, to okay. place her in the most prominent of roles. And you know what? According to the very limited information we've got, because when you push too far, you get your stuff erased. You get mm. your names erased. You get your temples erased. You get your statues smashed. Mm-hmm. It's hard to piece this story together. But her daughter, Nefere, was placed, it seems, into the position of the highest priestess in the land. That's God's wife of Amun. Okay. But that was the same position that Hatshepsut before her had held. So that's not that crazy. It's certainly not boundary breaking, right? It's it's very traditional. Mm-hmm. But Hatshepsut may have been pushing Nefure to serve as co-king alongside her nephew Tutmos the Third. And if she did that, then she received extraordinary pushback. But the larger answer to your question is Hatshepsut knew she could be no feminist, and indeed, there's no concept of feminism in the hmm. ancient world. Hmm. And by feminism, all I mean is that 50% of the population holds 50% of the power. There's there's no concept of this in an ancient world where you have an authoritarian regime that that needs to be as risk-averse as possible, produce as many babies as possible. You know, you don't want to put a woman biologically into the center of that wheel of power. Mm. She can have one baby a year. She can't have 365 like your your very able um, (laughs) man in in the center of the wheel. So it's... um, it's, it's something that she thought of, and she may have wanted to create a legacy for more women in power, but she knew she had to be traditional, too. And then the, the worst part about it, as soon as her nephew, Tutmos III, takes over and has his sole reign, he starts to disempower that office of high priestess that she had held and that her daughter had held. And he starts to place people in that office over whom he can exert considerable control, uh, like wives who, who are not king's daughters or, or other women. And that continues into the next reign. So you don't even have the jumping board, the springboard for female power after that. 
because there's every time females gain power, there is pushback. It's mm. the same way in the United States when a minority gains power. You see it with President Barack Obama, a black man gains power, and then the pushback against it over mm. the next decade right. or more yeah. is extreme. And we should expect the same when, when females gain power as well. Yeah. Well, you, I think I was, it was one of the, um, one of the interviews you had with Craig Ferguson and you were saying, you were describing how she portrayed herself as a man. Is that correct? She did. After year 16, at least she starts depicting herself as a man. Mm. And the question is, is did she also dress as a man while she was king? And while we don't know the answer to that, that's what she's showing. So maybe not in her hangout, you know, in the palace as she's just sitting around with friends and family. But when she's in a very formal ritual affair within the temple, it does seem that she binds her breasts, that she puts on a false beard. She wears a kilt, a masculine kilt, mm. and, and dresses as a man. And she depicts herself really as a twin to mm. her nephew and co-king, Tutmose III, mm. and, and shows herself as this masculine embodiment of kingship, even though her texts are very clear to, to claim her as a daughter of Red. So it's, it's the funkiest thing that what you show to the mass of society, to the people who can just see the pictures and understand that, is everything's fine, you have you know two kings, but one, they were both masculine, it's all good. But to those people who are intellectually at the very top or also the top 1% of society, those people who are hanging out with her anyway and know she's a female, they're allowed to understand that, that she is a woman. And the gods themselves are allowed to understand that she's a woman so there's mm. nothing untoward in in that way but it's a very complicated path that she's walking between masculinity and it femininity. is it, yeah it it just it, it begs the question i mean yeah i'll just go ahead and say it i mean historically would you say that she is the first transsexual in recorded history you know i was just asked this by somebody who's doing a documentary on transgenderism mm -hmm. and said oh then Hatshepsut, you know she really fits into transgenderism and i said well wait a minute you know i i understand that transgenderism is an actual biological reality that if we sit down with a biologist and look at sexuality it is so much more complicated than just male or female mm. we as society with an agricultural and economic demand to fit people into certain categories have created male female and that's it mm. when actually there's the male who wants to be with males sexually and the female who wants to be with the female sexually or the male who wants to be with the females but is more feminine or you know there's all kinds of sexual expressions within mammalian species and humanity included mm -hmm. so these things exist and there are some societies that allow that transgenderism or non-binary sexuality to express itself mm -hmm. like hunter-gatherer societies would allow that more non-traditional societies cities and you know opening econ economies and not being agriculturally bound we're now seeing transgender expression again um, after one would argue 10,000 years of being put into a binary by an agricultural system but that doesn't mean that Hatshepsut is expressing this herself mm -hmm. and I would argue that she's forced to do this, that this is an, an imposed transgenderism, not something that she's finally got the freedom to express. It's something that she has to do, kind of like the woman, and I'm sure you have many listeners out there who are women in the workplace busting their asses who know that they have to masculinize their expressions, their way of being, their dress, 
when they go out into the workplace and you know put on their power suit don't show their cleavage you know don't wear too high a heel and and try to masculinize especially for that first job interview put that hair back it's something that females understand in their bones mm. they're going to walk the arenas of power they've got to to put on that male armor in some way shape or form they can't cry at the meeting they can't show that more feminine gender expression if we want to stereotype but that you know that is something that fits our our gender as well for for most of us on a gradient and and so the, i think that's what hapshepsa is having to do and so again i i'm it may say, make me sound super cynical <laughs> but i'm not putting that into a positive spin i'm putting that into a a social imposition demanding that she be what they expect mm. and you can see in the statuary that she doesn't want to do it her first mm. statues show her as a female king, you know, beautiful, wearing a dress, heart-shaped face, these gracile features and, and limbs. And then eventually she, she gives in and she's got this square jaw and these, you know, biceps that are really, you know, buff and, and the pectoral muscles. I mean, she becomes a man. And uh, most of her statuary and, and relief images depict her that way. Yeah. But I doubt that she actually wanted to present herself that way to her people. Yeah, but she was just, she she did what she needed to do at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think there are lots of women who do what they, what they need to do at the time. The other thing to keep in mind, and being a woman of 46 years of age, this is something I think about all the time. You, when, when a woman ages, she loses her social value because she loses her sexual value. A man can have babies until he's 70, right? He can impregnate and be sexually attainable. If he gains political office, power and political office, he can he can get more girlfriends, more women, right? This is what mammals do to reward each other. Mm. If a woman gains more power and political office, does she get more boyfriends? If she's, you know, some 65-year-old, can you imagine Hillary Clinton, if she became president, then having... You know, it's revealed that she has all these boyfriends on the side. I mean, this is. I think this, this culture like, would uh, would think is pretty entertaining, to be honest. It would, they would think it was entertaining, <laughs> yes, but we think of it as aberrant. We yeah. think of it as immoral, yeah. and beyond immoral, just something that's twisted and gross, mm. and you know, like a taboo. So, a woman who's aging has to gain power in in a, in a rather asexual way or even a masculinizing way mm. and you see that with elizabeth the first catherine the great had to go through that kind of a transition um as as they lose their sexual power and so that's something i see that is typical for the the female and uh yet another tragedy we're lining them up this is horrible <laughs> man I'm, but you know it's it's funny that you say that because when it comes to trump and I don't, I don't even know how to express this, but he doesn't seem like he has any like sexual attraction that women are like, oh yeah, you know. It's just I don't, I don't get that from him. So yeah, but you can, you can low key social creatures. We are yeah. social creatures. So whether you find him attractive with his false hair and you know belly and whatever and age, he's not winning not. off sex appeal. <laughs> no, but he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. And and. I think that you'll agree that his girlfriends in their whatever form they take being revealed appeals to his base of fragile masculinity. That mm. that is something that shows his power to them. Something yeah. that they would want themselves, that they have no problems with understanding, they have no moral issues with. That this is something that actually does grant him power rather than, as one would expect, being a scandal that would take it away. 
and the way he sexualizes his daughter Ivanka and includes her in his circle of sexual power the way yeah. he's talked about her and I mentioned this in the book on, on his you know Howard Stern shows and other places um, this is part of a mammalian show of power you know the silverback gorilla the the ability to to show your to, to include your sexual power over even your own daughter and this is something Egyptian kings did as well wow. you know, Amenhotep the third elevated two of his daughters to to great royal wife Akhenaten after him did the same this is this is something that Egyptian kings did regularly and it's something that that great masculine power as an aging king it, it proves your power to say look I may be old, I may be not in the prime of my life, and there are all these young men, but watch my power. I take my own daughter, or I take that young, sexy thing, and she is now mine. And the power is now maintained and displayed amongst a society. So in many ways, he's he's done it um, too well, very well. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so now what I want to do with our limited time, I want to transition into some questions from the audience because I reached out to them. They've sent in plenty of questions. So let's get awesome. as many done as possible. Awesome. So um, let's see. First question. The Is there, uh, as far as, I'll put it like this. I don't think that race is as prominent or as real of a thing as we make it to, uh, to, make it to be. I think it's more of a social construct. Um, but there are like civilizations of people. So how closely connected, you know, would you say racially are the Nubians from the the Nubians to the Egyptians as far as like skin tone, um, facial features, all, all that type of stuff? So there have been a number of genetic studies done. And, and you're right. Race is a social construct. But that doesn't mean I can't get my 23andMe test done. And For sure. That, you know, I'm I'm 12 and a half percent. Uh, Middle Eastern and probably Jewish, right? And make me go, oh my God, I had no idea. And that's so interesting to me. Right. And I, it's, is it the Jewish race? I mean, no, but, but I can do that. And right. so there have been a number of genetic studies done. And I posted on my page, my Facebook page about this um, and Twitter too recently, mm. that there's one study that in a German study that took all of these um, mummies that they had in storage in a museum and did genetic tests and then compared them to populations around the world in the Mediterranean region and they're like oh look they're more connected to Levantine peoples and then all of these news articles were released saying oh the ancient Egyptians were not um, African they were more connected to East or to West Asia than to anything else hmm. well then the Egyptologists at least the ones who knew what they were doing stepped up and said what are you guys talking about you're using mummies from an Eastern Delta site where, of course, you're going to show connections with people from the Levant, from West Asia, because they are West Asian, probably. Mm -hmm. And there are other studies that are done with, a, and, and they did this with, like, they, they studied, like, a dozen mummies, and that's it. So very limited <laughs> data set, yeah. which is ridiculous, yeah. right, to make this claim, oh, the ancient Egyptians were not African, give me a break. So there's another study that's been done of the Egyptian population itself, the current Egyptian population north and south, up and down, you know, there's no east and west because you've got that Nile Valley. Right. That's the only place you can really live. Mm -hmm. And so they tested that and they they said, oh no, you know, Egyptians, modern Egyptians are not Arab. 
though they call themselves Arab, right? Because there's this Arab invasion in the seventh century, for sure, AD, mm-hmm. and there's this understanding that you know the whole population was replaced. But no, you get an invasion and you get the leadership coming in, mm-hmm. and maybe seven percent of the population gets replaced, mm. but everyone else stays what they were. And right. what Egyptians, modern Egyptians, are is North African, mm-hmm. and that means that they share racial similarities or genetic similarities better said Mm -hmm. with other north africans people from libya um people from um uh ethiopia to to some extent but mostly north africa not as much Mm sub-saharan and though there are the further south you go there's more sub-saharan um genetic types so the larger genetic study of the larger egyptian population proves that ancient Egyptians are North Africans in their genetic type. Mm-hmm. That means that their skin is not as dark as somebody who is sub-Saharan. Right. Um, but it can approach it as you as you get down south into Aswan and approaching northern Sudan. Um, but there's a gradient of this, but that seems to be the, the, the general type of the ancient Egyptians. Now, this is really complicated because you're saying it's a social construct. And if I go to Egypt today and I ask an Egyptian, well, what are you? in terms of race. Mm -hmm. And that Egyptian would, I've been told, Caucasoid or Caucasian, and I go, oh, really? Mm. (laughs) And and I look at the people around me, and I see people of color, and I see a bunch of people that if they were in Alabama in 1954 would have had to sit in the back of the bus, right? according to a Western understanding of of color, skin color, and power. Mm -hmm. uh, Or an understanding within a black community of skin color and power. I taught at Howard University for a year, and, and learned from the students what it means to have lighter skin versus darker skin, and how powerful this this can be particularly for females versus males and it's uh, you understand it more than me mm-hmm. how complicated this can get internally as well as externally right so so race or genetic type in egypt i mean egyptian egypt is in africa geographically we've yeah. got that but yeah. then according to genetics egyptians then and now uh share a north african genetic um type mm-hmm. and that's where i'd go with it are there european types coming in sure mm-hmm. are there levantine types coming in yes are there sub-saharan coming in yes but um anybody who tries to say that the egyptians were european is wrong right and any you know this caucasoid claim and anybody who tries to say the egyptians are arab west ancient is also wrong mm-hmm. so you know but everyone this is the cool thing for me Everyone wants a piece of this place. Everyone wants to claim Egypt. And so that's a fact. Everybody's trying to. Yeah, because they're so damn cool. You know, I'm some white chick from Texas who's devoted my life to studying these people. Why? Because I I love them. You ask me why? I don't know why. They just speak to me in a way that nothing else does. Mm -hmm. And they have yet to disappoint me. And there are millions of people on this globe that feel the same way. And so they try to impose their own racial type or cultural type on these people to claim them. Mm. And you see people on on all sides doing this. And the ancient Egyptians would have been like, "Um, okay, (laughs) we don't quite get it. Mm -hmm. Because they would have been in the middle of the gradient of skin color. They would have had imperial occupation over the Nubians to the south who had a much darker skin color, but also... Um, often in their history, the people to the north in the Levant and in Libya had a much lighter skin color. Mm-hmm. So they didn't understand skin color in a binary for sure. the way that we often do. And they didn't see a darker skin color as a weakness mm-hmm. the way that we often do. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, so it's as complicated as you can 
as you can get. But um, Egyptologists, white or of color, um, not Egyptian, are better at pushing back against this mythology that the ancient Egyptians were somehow white. Yeah, and it was it was interesting to me when I went to Amzi and at the King Tut exhibit and seeing yeah. seeing the the, re, the replicas. It was a lot of uh, you know it, it was brown complected people dark you know black you know it was just yeah. all types of spectrum so and then also in the video that they were showing where i forgot what archaeologist was there back in the early 1900s and it's like all the workers <laughs> that were there like the the natives or the locals yeah. they were they were very dark so very it was dark, yeah. it was just like you know when did when did they get so light <laughs> like who who came in there you know done by Europeans. The American reconstruction of Tutankhamun gave no skin color and just kept it a white plaster, which could speak something in and of itself, and I can understand that potentially being problematic. Mm -hmm. But the the French one that, that looks like Barbara Streisand, and I don't mm -hmm. know if you know which one I'm talking about. I know about. what you're talking about, yeah. The skin, you know, they put that on the cover of National Geographic, and when I was curating the LACNA exhibition in 2005, LACNA LA County Museum of Art for mm -hmm. Tutankhamen, mm -hmm. they put it on display for like a week until they yanked it because the skin color was so light that it just set off a firestorm of racial politics and, right. you know, here in Los Angeles. You have to expect that kind of thing. And we had people picketing the museum saying King Tut is back and he's black. Mm. And um, and I still have my t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's dope. And they... And they darkened it on the magazine cover mm -hmm. and they took the replica off display so you know it's um it's important that we understand that people of color can and did produce amazing civilizations and you know we can't we can't let these claims go unanswered i i don't think yeah yeah that's it's, it's crazy it's, it's we can go back and forth on that for a long time but uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so another listener had a question they said uh they wanted to ask about the fall of egypt you know how the greeks were able to infiltrate you know yeah. and, and cripple the empire um how did they do that you know an empire that was so wealthy and rich in culture well egypt you know i've, I've used the word imperial once already mm -hmm. and i as soon as i said it i regretted it and i just had a conversation with a friend um the colleague yesterday about egypt not being imperial mm -hmm. egypt didn't you know egypt was able to take over nubia and mm -hmm. egypt was able to have a hegemony over the levant um up to the up to the lebanon but egypt really didn't have an empire like the persian empire or the assyrian empire before that or mm -hmm. the roman empire um it wasn't an expansive polity. It wasn't an expansive government because it didn't need to. Egypt was very well and able to live within its own borders quite happily with that Nile River creating easy agricultural wealth and fat juicy kernels of grain, wheat and barley, all the beer you want. I mean, it creates a people that don't need to go off and expand because they're so busy drinking their own beer and eating their own luscious breads. And I mean, it's, it's an easy place to have a high population and to live, mm. which means that as soon as empires are formed, starting with the Akkadian, then going on into the Babylonian, then the Assyrian, then the Neo-Babylonian, then the Persian, and then the Roman after that, these empires just were able to buffet Egypt around repeatedly. Egypt gets sacked when the Assyrians invade. Um, the Persians take them into their control, and it's called the 27th dynasty. I mean, Egypt is a, a, tr a province of the... Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. And then the Persians get defeated and they're brought into Alexander the Great's very short-lived empire. 
he dies and leaves his general Ptolemy behind. So now Egypt is not under imperial control. The Ptolemaic kings, though Macedonian Greek and not Egyptian, mm-hmm. are there settled into Egypt, native in a sense, or like a, you know adopting Egypt as their homeland, not trying to rule from Macedon and instead ruling Egypt from Egypt. And then you have a kind of native rule that returns, even though it's, it's um, done by Macedonian Greeks. And Cleopatra VII may actually have had an Egyptian mother. There's a great deal of debate about that. Mm. But then it gets brought into the Roman Empire again, you know, after 200 years of Ptolemaic Macedonian rule. So really, Egypt's problem is the one of geography. It's that it, it has all of this gold in its eastern desert and to the south in Nubia. It has all of this steady agriculture from the flooding of the Nile. It doesn't need to expand. And so it becomes an easy target for empires to take over again and again. But because of its strong language, um, strong religious ways, uh, cultural strength, each time an empire comes in and invades and takes Egypt as a province, it is changed by it. It is influenced by it. Um, You see the the Persian emperors changing their their way of rule from contact with Egypt, taking on the solar winged disc, maybe, um, and and using that in their religion. Um, You see the, you see the Macedonian Greeks become Egyptian. They dress Egyptian. You know, they decide to give up all Macedonian things, build these temples and show themselves as these Egyptian kings to kind of fake us out. Mm -hmm. And, and so in, in the one hand, Egypt's lack of imperial prowess means it's just going to get taken in again and again. But on the other, each time it is, its cultural power Mm. enables it to push back. So, yeah. So, I I mean, this is a common question. You know, what happened to Egypt? Well, what happened to Rome? Italy doesn't rule the world anymore anyway. And it's certainly not one of the most powerful countries in the EU. It's often on the back foot economically and politically. It's in disarray. These are places that once were great and now are not as great but these are the cycles that the the world goes through and we once were great in the united states and i think we can see our own demise coming towards us these things happen britain once ruled the world Mm -hmm. and now it is um probably if it goes through with brexit going to lose northern ireland and scotland Mm -hmm. and become a tiny shell of what it once was so these are things that that the world, um, the geography and the economic systems impose upon us. And and I would caution against thinking that there's an Egyptian way that will find its, you know, superiority again. That's that's just not the way I find that things work. Yeah. Yeah, I kinda think America's in is in disarray as well. Like what where where would you say what what point in time would you point to as far as like the time when we were great? Two was our was our peak, and then after World War Two, you know, all of that prosperity that that came to us, but also all of that social equality after World War Two. We were leveled after that. The whole world was leveled after that experience. The huge population loss. Um, every man or woman is needed to work. Um, you didn't have. You had destroyed these incredibly rich men who were able to rule during the twenties and thirties around the globe. And you, you had a more evenly uh, dispersed wealth. And we now see that we, we've headed towards the opposite, right? If, if we go in waves of equality and 
inequality. We are in a height of social and economic inequality where very few people are able to hoard, hide, and launder tremendous amounts of money. And most of us are just hustling, driving our Ubers, teaching our classes, you know, doing what we can do to work to get ahead, but never able to save enough to maybe buy a house, never able to save enough to get that education, never able to compete with those less than one percenters who are able to change the laws, who are able to create Citizens United so the lobbyists and money can run the show. Um, you know, if things keep going like this, we're, we're headed towards um, oligarchy outright. Right now, I look at the United States as a kind of corporatocracy, you know, a kleptocracy. Money is running things, and the, the few who wield that money are running things. Yeah. It'll, it'll take a big break and a tremendous amount of pain. Usually that's what happens in history. Mm-hmm. Some sort of horrific event, a war, a pestilence, um, something, something really bad, some sort of geographic or, sorry, climactic shift. Um, that changes things enough for people to equalize society. We don't seem to be able to regulate our way out of these things, unfortunately. Carrie, yeah. we got to make a hard stop at eleven, right? You have a an, an appointment. Uh, let me let me check because I think my I was I just got a text from my next one is eleven thirty, so oh. I'm I'm okay. Awesome, it's awesome. Ten fifty now, so you, yeah. you've got a bit more time. Yeah, it's all awesome, right. awesome. Okay, so I got a few more questions. Um, yeah, don't, don't let's see. Uh, what do you think happened to all the literature left over from the fall of Egypt? Um, literature left over from the. Or was there? Was Egypt. everything just written in in the cave in in the stone? No, no, we've lost so much of it. Mm-hmm. No, I just had to think about how to approach the question because this is a big one. You, mm-hmm. know, you could write. You could write books about that, and of course, people have. Well, we all we all know about the burning of the Library of Alexandria. For sure. What what year was that again? What year was that? It's debated because it seems to have been burned twice. There's when when um, uh, Julius Caesar comes into Egypt, and there is a battle between Ptolemy the Thirteenth and Julius Caesar. And mm-hmm. Julius Caesar, using flaming arrows and a fire defense, may actually have set the Library of Alexandria alight. Um, if that is the truth, then they put part of it out and they were able to rebuild it because it's then burned again in the 5th century AD at Christian hands. And really, we can blame St. Cyril of Alexandria. Um, Christians, you know, Abrahamic religions are not very um, flexible and, uh, and able to, to see and, and maintain different points of view. So intellectualism in many ways had to go. Um, so the, the Library of Alexandria was purposefully burned many would argue by Christians Mm -hmm. Um, so a huge amount of of literature and and knowledge and philosophy and mathematics um, all this human invention were lost in that moment which still hurts many of our hearts but a great deal was was lost potentially before that there's all kinds of tales and stories and and other kinds of instructions or or ways of living one's life that the Egyptians wrote down that we have preserved from tombs. If a papyrus was kept by somebody and brought into a dry tomb environment, then it's preserved to us to to keep and study. And there are hundreds of of such texts and I could run a whole and have a whole class on Egyptian literature and you talk about all the different genres and you can read things in, in ancient Egyptian and I train my students how to read hieroglyphs how to read the cursive form of these hieroglyphs as well, and and we work through this this material. But I would say we only have five percent to work with. That there was wow. a tremendous amount that that we've lost, and 
most of it is is lost just at the in in the wetness of Egypt. Wetness destroys, mm-hmm. and Egypt along that Nile is a very very wet place. And in the the dry outer areas in the desert, things survive, but it's not a place where people live. So you you have to wait for somebody to include a text to include something in their in their tomb for us to be able to yeah. study. Um, how much of modern religion was extracted from Egypt that you know of? Uh, more than we think. Mm-hmm. More than we think. So think of, I grew up Roman Catholic mm-hmm. and Roman Catholicism, like you, you take the, the moment in the altar where you are going to turn that bread into the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it is a mystery and it is a God-given thing, but you have to go through the ritual in a particular way to get that to happen, to mm-hmm. get the divinity to enter into the bread. Mm-hmm. Before you do that, you create a circle of containment using incense. And you take the incense and you go around the altar and you make sure that you have created almost like a witch's circle, if mm-hmm. you like, a, mm-hmm. a circle of, of sanctity, of protection. That is Egyptian. The incense is Egyptian. Um, and, and using that incense in that way to create a sacred space is an Egyptian thing. To transform a divinity into a form that one can ingest, you know, drink the blood, eat the bread, those are rather Egyptian things. And, and you can read a lot of magical spells where you, you pull from divinity and you, you drink something or you ingest something after pouring it onto a statue of a god of you know showing Horus as a child or, or something you pour water beer on there and you ingest it and that is a, a very Egyptian thing and of course bread is um, the idea that bread is life that's that's a very Egyptian notion and then to take that even further you know the idea of the mother and child the the Mary image holding the the baby Jesus that's mm-hmm. Isis holding Horus mm-hmm. and and the similarities are so clear to, to me but for the ancient people they often took over statues of Isis and Horus and made them into the Virgin Mary and the Christ child and reused them in that way because mm-hmm. it was very easily reused and then the biggest one for me that I think is so cool and so interesting is the virgin birth itself mm. this is an Egyptian notion that the God creates himself that he does not need any sort of femininity he doesn't need um to he he creates himself with his own spark and and i hope i don't shock your listeners but the egyptian creation story is a very sexual one Mm -hmm. and it talks of the god creating himself through a sexual act with himself so it's a masturbatory big bang if you like that created the world the first time Mm. and then creates the world every day the sun god impregnates his own mother with his own future self um, Osiris, after his death every season from from his uncle or so, from his brother Seth, reaches out his hand to his phallus and recreates himself um, to create the flooding of the Nile. It is meant to be a giant ejaculation, but that masculine creation—I <laughs> know. I hope I don't a giant so ejaculation. I know. You should see me teaching undergraduates this stuff. They're like, "I'm sorry, what did you just say?" I just, <laughs> just said that. I just did. Um, but that's the way Egyptians present it, so that's the way I, I, I teach it and, and work with it. Um, so we are the means, seeds of God. That's that's what exactly. they're saying. Exactly. And okay. this idea that you <laughs> the, the that Jesus is the the Father God creating himself by impregnating Mary with his own Holy Spirit, his his um seed, 
if you like, mm. um, not to shock your listeners too much, um, is this is, is all about very, unapologetic expression. They they won't be shocked. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> it's a very Egyptian notion, this virgin birth. And, it, you know, you look at it, you're like, I don't understand. Who is, what woman's going to give birth without having ever had sex with a man? And everyone, you know, when you read the story, you read your Luke or whatever, and your Gospels, you're, everyone's shocked. And how could she have gotten pregnant without having known a man? Um, it seems rather ridiculous. But for the Egyptians, I mean, they would have understood this. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is Osiris creating himself as Horus. Mm. And it, it fits perfectly. So the, the amount of Egyptian religion that's embedded uh, cognitively, cerebrally within, within Christianity is a lot. Um, how that then translates into Islam, it's a little more touchy, a little more problematic. Mm-hmm. And then I would argue that Judaism has a lot of more ancient Egyptian tropes. And I would encourage your readers to look at the solar hymn created by the king Akhenaten, uh, this very strange king who upended Egyptian religion into the worship of the, the solar disk alone and, and no other god, so he tells us. Mm-hmm. His solar hymn can be found in some cases word for word in, in Psalm 120. I think it's Psalm 120. You'll have to look. His but you'll, solar hymn. Wow. Yes. And it's amazing. This psalm you know, its earliest its earliest attestation would be in written form around 600 BC, mm-hmm. and Akhenaten is writing this stuff down around 1350 BC. Mm. So you can see the kernels of much of Judaic religious thought within Egyptian religious thought, and that's just one example. There are other places that one that one can look for the sources of monotheism within Egyptian. Religion. Yeah, and and there are some other uh, remnants like. Uh... Um, like the 42 negative confessions out of the, the book of the dead, like, you know, in it, in the, the 10 commandments, you know, so it's, if yeah. you read the 10 yeah. commandments then I like, I stumbled, I just recently stumbled upon the 42 negative confessions. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, wait, this is like the 10 commandments, but even more detailed and, and in depth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, well, and it makes sense. I mean, if, I'm not going to be stupid enough to tell you that, you know, Moses with this coming, the, the, Jewish story, the mm-hmm. Hebrew story tells us that they were in Egypt, yeah. that they escaped Egypt, yeah. right? So they're gaining a huge amount of cultural knowledge from Egypt, and they tell us this themselves. So for us, yeah, to they don't, this, they don't hide it. Exactly. So for us to discount this is ridiculous. The Old Testament finds many um, cultural sources within Egyptian culture as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. for sure. All right, another question. Uh, what ethics are involved in the excavation of the Egyptian tombs? Like, who decides how much value or merit these things have in the modern art world also? But actually, I, that's, that's, that's two questions. So, yeah, just first things first. What ethics are involved in the excavation of Egyptian tombs? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting one. And people have a lot of issues with archaeologists going into a tomb space and rummaging around dead people and mm. what gives you the right and would you do that with a modern graveyard etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. and and i i understand the cultural sensitivities now having said that i have worked in tombs myself and i am a coffin expert i'm a social historian who focuses on egyptian coffins um these bright polychrome painted objects and some of them have mummies inside of them so i deal with the dead and death on a daily basis in my own work mm. and Ethics are important because when you're working with a deceased individual, it's 
very easy to objectify that individual to make them into an object mm. and of study or of cultural power and to do so without um, cognizance of what you're doing so it, working in a tune let me start with that this is why I have no problem with Egyptologists working in tombs. The tomb that I worked in, and almost every tomb that you work in, is ransacked by tomb robbery over the millennia. So it's upended. It's you know a mix of, of it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. The tomb that I worked in was called Theban Tomb 92, and it had multiple burial shafts and, and burial spaces that were filled with a mix of bodies that had been literally ripped apart. So working in that space, you would find a mummy hand and then a mummy arm and then a mummy head and then a mummy torso. And you would find a bunch of bandages and you would find mummy nets, but broken apart. And you know, you would find all these shoptis, all of these different things, right? Mm -hmm. And what we did is we then took all of the human body parts and laid them to the side, brought our bioarchaeologist in who can figure out the minimum number of individuals, which body parts belong to which individual, put those together um, documents and analyze and then put those bodies into a respectful and safe space and in a way put them back together and give them the respect that they did not have before we entered that space put them into a box of his or her own if you like mm. and and then resuscitate what their social lives were and allow them to speak again to us so to lose that opportunity, I think, would be to lose a tremendous amount of information, and it would also not let the dead speak to us. So given that I'm going into these spaces, and I, I in a sense, this sounds creepy, but I do feel like I'm speaking for the dead. And so when I'm working with a coffin, for instance, and there is a mummy inside of that coffin, I, in my mind, I don't want to freak out the people I'm working with. I'll just say, hello, dead person. Nice to see you. Um, I'm going to work on your coffin and, and I, you know, work on this coffin with a, with a respect so that I can allow the dead to, to communicate what their lives were like. And then I put that coffin back. It goes back into a museum case. Generally, those mummies are not on display. We've, we've turned away, I think, as a culture from displaying mummies outright. And instead, we, we display the things that surround the body. Now, the coffins that I study most of them have been reused, mm. which means that the ancient Egyptians during a time period of economic crisis took the body out of their own ancestor, right? Out of the coffin, yeah. placed it to the side within a tomb, brought that coffin out, had it replastered and repainted, updated, if you like, for the newly dead. And the person who's in that coffin was not the one who originally made that coffin. There's somebody who took that coffin and redid it. So our notions that the dead get to keep their spaces and their things forever is wrong. And it's wrong even from the ancient Egyptian perspective. The ancient Egyptians understood that the dead needed these things for a short-term transition into divinities in their own right. And then once they've been transformed, these coffins could morally be taken from them, that they didn't need to dwell in them for eternity. We run our own graveyards this way. We don't have completely flexible and infinite space for the dead mm -hmm. and we in a special graveyard especially you move people around you place them in different spaces you you give people who are of the last two generations the most prime spots and then you move people around as time goes on this is why you have you know 
churches in, in Europe that are filled with bones because they, they keep the floors, you know, they have to move bodies around. Body movement is something that every culture needs to do. And you need to dispose of your dead in the most economical, space-efficient way possible. So you need to shift people around. And the living are the ones who win. The living are always going to be the ones who are going to need the most space and are going to claim the most. And do the living sometimes treat the dead with great disrespect? Oh my God, yes. But we as archeologists can go in and, and try to give the dead their space again in a respectful way and also allow them to tell their stories in a way that they weren't able to having been ripped limb from limb or lying in a coffin that nobody's looked at. So, you know, I, I understand the, the sensitivities of it, but um, I feel good about the work that I do. But, you know, I'm careful about posting a lot of this stuff on Facebook. So when people find, you know, a tomb filled with 30 mummies, I often don't post that mm -hmm. because I feel that somebody who is, who associates themselves with an ancient Egyptian would be like, you're digging up my people's graves, like a Native American thing. You're building a Walmart on my ancient burial ground, or you're, you know, you're, you're treating my African-American graveyard with disrespect. And, and I get that. So it has to be done in a, in a particular way. Um, and, and today it is being done this way. We don't mm -hmm. unwrap mummies anymore. We don't objectify and display them and the egyptians the modern day egyptians are not very keen on showing the mummies of of the dead in an overt fashion they're very respectful of mm -hmm. the dead and there are special rooms set aside in the egyptian museum and other places for the display of, of the bodies so how do the egyptians themselves profit from the work that egyptologists do the Egyptians profit a tremendous amount because a huge part of Egypt's GDP is tourism. Okay. So people come to Egypt and spend dollars and euros and, and other currencies because they want to participate. Like I said, everyone wants a piece of Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. And I give a talk and people are like, oh my God, I want to go to Egypt. Is it safe? And I'm like, are you serious? Really? When was the last school shooting? You're asking me if Egypt is safe. The Egyptians <laughs> ask me if I, I'm safe every day. Yeah. But that's a different discussion, right? Where? So, um, where were we on... Um, the, uh, how, how do they profit from it? Oh, sorry. Yeah, from yeah. the work that you guys so, do? Um, so, you know, Egyptologists come from all over the place, and it is a very colonial science. I'm the white chick from Texas. I work with people who are from the Netherlands. I work with people from Britain. I work with people from Japan. We come from all over the world and we work on ancient Egyptian materials that the modern day Egyptians actually um, have for, the, for most of their history largely ignored in a scientific way. This has been something that Europeans, Americans and Australians have been more interested in than the modern Egyptians. This is changing just now. Um, but it's an uncomfortable reality that if you wanna get a PhD in Egyptology, you'll have a better shot getting that PhD in Europe, the United States, or Australia as an Egyptian, bringing that PhD back to Egypt and then employing it there. Mm. So Zahi Hawass, who's a very famous Egyptologist, got his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and then went back to Egypt and became the Minister of Antiquities. This is not the way we would like to have it. We, we would rather have a very strong um, Egyptian university system that trains within Egyptology, but because of Islam, 
And because of the understanding of ancient Egyptian religion as being against God's ways, mm. there is a cultural push against studying this material. And there is a break, a hard break, amongst people who are Muslim and people who are not. Mm. And so I think this colonialism will continue, unfortunately, for some time. But there is now a nationalist pushback. And, and you see it in Egyptology that I don't make great discoveries because I'm just some person in a museum studying coffins and writing my, my trade books about women. But if I were an archaeologist who was making grand and great discoveries, if I did make one, I need to report that to the Ministry of Antiquities. Mm. And the ministry claims that discovery, not me. And they can, they can cite my American University of California expedition or not. But it's owned by Egypt. It's their national patrimony. And it's theirs now to claim and publish as they like. And this is something that's been happening more forcefully in the last five years. And I've noticed a lot of European, American, and Australian, and Japanese teams being upset about this. But it's, um, it's what needs to happen when colonialism takes over a place. It's what happened in Mexico. Um, it's what happened in, in much of Central American archaeology and South American archaeology, Peru. Um, and it's, it's what needs to happen in, in Egypt as well. And we're going through those changes now. So in terms of who profits, um, it, it depends. If, if I'm working on an object in an American museum, then maybe I could profit by publishing this. But really, there's not money for me to profit from by publishing a coffin. Mm -hmm. um, and if I find a coffin in a tomb, I have to go through the ministry now. So that's that's been locked down. Right. And um, and the Egyptians, they're ones who are, who are profiting. And their tourism numbers have, have gotten better. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that and I, you know, it's interesting. One would have to do a sociological study to see how much national control of, of the antiquities uh, field is connected to perception of Egypt, to safety and tourism. It's it's interesting. These things often work at, at cross purposes, though. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah. So, man, you had a question too about the antiquities trade, right? I did. I, I yeah. I guess I will go into that. There was another thing that kind of popped up in what you were talking about, but I'll, I'll get to that later. So, okay. th but that other question that I did kind of run through really quickly was. Who decides how much value or merit, you know, these things have in the modern art world, these these artifacts and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to trade Egyptian objects these days. Mm -hmm. I do not engage in it in any way, shape or form. And most museum curators and directors whom I know do not engage in it in, in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. um, because... The, Antiquities markets are essentially money laundering schemes, and you don't know what is contained in that trade. So any of your listeners or anybody who's engaged in buying an antiquity off of eBay, you have to, or, or wherever, you have to think very carefully about what it is you're doing, what it is you're buying, and, you know, Indiana Jones, as he says, that belongs in a museum. Of course, how he gets those objects is very unethical, but that's a different thing. <laughs> um, but... Um, the, the sale of these things, um, though people still engage in this, and now you see people buying Egyptian antiquities in, you know, United Arab Emirates, Saudi, China. These are the places that are acquiring these antiquities. There is still a market, and the middlemen are in Israel or they're in Switzerland. 
and it's a dirty business and mm. I try to stay far away from it it's masking um, gun trafficking weapons trade human trafficking drug trafficking it's it's a very problematic thing and it's paying the people who it's encouraging the looting of sites on a large scale right by desperate people who want to put food on the table mm -hmm. and it pays them pennies and gives the the middlemen all of the wealth and the people at the end of it the most of the wealth mm. um for people to collect and get a piece of egypt so i actually have huge ethical problems with this mm. now all of this stuff so then some of your some of your listeners are like well what about all this stuff in museums you know if i go to the la county museum of art there's all of this egyptian stuff that william randolph hearst collected and then sold to LACMA and what, what's all that about right. and yeah I, I agree with you this is dirty stuff too but it's dirty stuff that came to us and came to rich collectors in the 10s 20s and 30s or even before that and I can't change that history in that past mm -hmm. and the there are certain objects that do need to be returned to Egypt and we could probably name them right here like Nefertiti's bust in Berlin mm -hmm. should go back um, the Rosetta Stone. I'm down with that going back to Egypt. It should be returned. That definitely um, needs to go back. There's right? no doubt about and that. And yeah. we could name these objects, you know, these important touchstones, things that that should be returned to, to Egypt because they were taken when there was an Ottoman imperial control over Egypt. That would be um, the Rosetta Stone. Ottoman imperial control fails. Britain and, and England are fighting over control of Egypt. The French lose. The British gain um, power over the French at the town of Rosetta, and they take the stone back to the British Museum. I mean, the British Museum is an, a monument to imperial um, raping of, of, of objects from around the world, and mm. it, it's a problem for the British Museum, because if they empty that thing out, they're not going to have anything left, mm -hmm. but, but it should still happen. Now, we, re we return those important objects, maybe you know a couple dozen objects um, that should go back. Then we need to, to think about all these other objects that were removed in divisions. You know, when the French and the British controlled Egypt colonially and, and an archaeologist would dig in a site and then half would stay in Egypt and half would go to New York. Half would stay in Egypt and half would go to Berlin, you know, depending on the team that was working there. If you tried to return all of that stuff to Egypt, it would be a ridiculous deluge of material, and the Egyptians wouldn't know where to put it, how to process it, what to do with it all. They have enough stuff within Egypt to deal with and to to register, register and, and, and deal with. And also these objects at LA County Museum of Art, at OMSI in Portland, at other places, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, most of these objects speak as ambassadors for Egypt. People want the piece of Egypt, and then they go to Egypt if they can and spend their tourist dollars. And it is a benefit to Egypt to keep those objects there. And I think if we asked Egyptian ministers of antiquities, do you want all of the stuff from the Met? They would be like, no, no. We want one thing, two things, and then the rest they stay. You know, So th there are ways of doing this without um, depleting the world's museums of their stuff. But we also need to be open that that reparations do need to be made and wrongs do need to be righted and no we didn't do it i wasn't a colonialist 200 years ago taking over egypt but i'm a beneficiary of that system and if i don't look at that with cold hard eyes and understand that i myself am benefiting from that and that there needs to be some sort of reparation made then i can't i can't be a, a good scholar within my field
So, so what yeah. what what step do you think you can take, you know, right now to to help that movement of some type of reparation for the people who have been looted and, and their land and their culture has been raped by these colonialists? Whenever I can on my own social media and I have I have almost all the things right. My, mm-hmm. my Twitter, my Facebook, um, Instagram, if if I come across an article where people are talking about the debate about returning the Elgin marbles the, to, to Greece, you know, the, the Parthenon marbles or Nefertiti's bust. I'm pretty clear in my opinion mm-hmm. that those things should be returned. And so I'm vocal and that's my drip, drip, drip. You know, I just put mm-hmm. that out there and try to soften the line and allow Egyptologists to not have to clutch onto these things so hard. And to try to see the benefit of a diplomatic exchange between museums, institutions, and places, you know, that the Berlin Museum could reach out to the Egyptian Museum and and return an object. And also for us to say something like, oh, but the Egyptians can't take care of it. I mean, that drives me crazy. Um, Yes, Egypt went through a revolution. Yes, Egypt has political instability. But, you know, we, we don't always do the best job ourselves in these museums. The, the Parthenon marbles were scrubbed down. All of the paint traces that, that were left from antiquity are gone because Europeans thought they needed to be cleaner. And what we have done to these, to some of these objects in our, our wisdom, right? Our European wisdom has, has been to destroy. So, you know, some places may have political problems and other places may have um, uh, cultural problems, but we don't necessarily know better than another place. And um, and in the end, these are just things. And what's more important, I tell my, my nine-year-old son every day, people are things. And he's like, people. I'm like, okay. So that's, that's where we go. So if you're able to make some sort of... Now, I'm not in control of the Berlin Museum. I'm not in control of the British Museum. I can't make this gesture. I'm just some professor at UCLA. But I can speak up and, and say what I think is, is the right thing to do. And I think people know it's the, the right thing to do. And their arguments are becoming more facile by the day. Um, and I did just read the director of the Egyptian Museum saying that, you know, things, that the Nefertiti bust was, was safer in, in Berlin and that they were the caretakers. And I, I mean, it's like, you know, Helen of Troy being, Helen being carted off from Mycenae to Troy and, you know, we've got your woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is that kind of a colonial feeling to the Nefertiti bust being in Berlin. And then you look at the postage stamp. You do a Google of Nefertiti, that bust being represented on postage stamps, German postage stamps, and how they have whitened that face um, and taken the, the color, the person of color out of the discussion, mm-hmm. um, taken the woman and whitened her. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. So... Egyptologists need to be open and speak up about these things. And that, to me, is the best reparation that I can make within my own scholarship. And I have a graduate student right now, Nicholas Brown, who's just written a brilliant article and and paper on um, the Nefertiti bust and Mm. its um, place in the colonial world and and how European museums attempt to, to use this and how the Egyptians counter it. So during the revolution, you know, they don't have this bust in their museum, but they show Nefertiti wearing a gas mask and they spray painted this all over Cairo. Mm. And it is an, and they put underneath it in Arabic, the voice of the revolution is the voice of the woman. 
And this is a counter-revolutionary, um, radical um, image to, to, to put against both the Egyptian government and European governments as well. It's, um, it's, a, it's a powerful thing to have your, your national patrimony taken from you. Yeah. Do you think it's strange that Egyptian history is not tied into the, cele the celebration of Black History Month whatsoever? Hmm. You know, I had never thought about it. And I just read a piece about how ridiculous Black History Month is. And, you know, my birthday, March 8th, falls on International Woman's Day. We get a day, you know. Mm. <laughs> it's like, okay, great. Um, it's it's like, okay, we're going to throw you this bone. You get a month. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about you for a month. And then we're going to go back to ignoring you for the rest of the time and just mm -hmm. exploiting and, and making the country being founded on chattel slavery completely invisible. Mm -hmm. Um Egypt, I think, is not included. So I, I kind of gave myself the same answer. Um, I think Egypt is not included in Black History Month because it doesn't fall into the African-American story. It's not a West African story. It's not um, a story of slavery and overcoming that, mm -hmm. of Jim Crow, of Confederate statues in southern cities. It's, it's a different kind of story. It's a story that gives African-Americans, however, a tremendous amount of pride and, and joy and something that doesn't have a, a colonialist or hegemonic tinge of somebody taking your power away. I mean, these are the people that built the pyramids. These are the people that, that created King Tut's funerary assemblage. This is, this is power. Mm -hmm. And so I have no problem with it. And it's not up to me to decide. Right, know? right. That's so, so I, I have, but you're right. It's not been used as part of Black History Month. Um, and is that because think, of the whitewashing of it? Like you're saying, like the bus oh, and never yes. TV being white. It you think explode? It would explode into a discussion of are the ancient Egyptians black? Which I engage is that in is that a my, real discussion? Is that a is that a debate? Gods, holy gods, yes. I engage in this discussion on my social media all the time, and you would be amazed, or maybe you would not <laughs> be amazed, particularly in Trump's America, at how mm -hmm. many people speak up and say oh the ancient egyptians are white what are you talking about this is ridiculous or they're not black or these binaries these black or white and how dare you say this um they pop up pretty clearly and um it's um then then the afrocentrist voice in sometimes does itself no favors by claiming the ancient egyptians to be purely black when there are gradients and communications with europe and west asia you know, I, I'd rather take the, the evidence for, for what it is. I think when people say that, they're saying white. they're saying they're black as in they're African, because what, what what black people see as black and white is black is basically of African descent well, and yeah. white is is of European descent. And so and, we also and also skin in this country. Right. We for sure. One drop if you have that one little drop of black, then there it is. Your whole likelihood is, is different. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, from that black perspective, then, yeah, they're they're black. But then I, I do understand that, that skin gradients, shades, colors, um, and watching Henry Louis Gates Jr. discover that he's more white than he is black genetically. I mean, these things have a power to them. Mm -hmm. And I would rather be very specific in my terminology mm. instead of saying black or white, because that just feeds the binary to me. Mm. Um, and it feeds the us or them. And I live in Los Angeles. My brother lives in New York. I see the world around me becoming more mixed up. And and my stepkids are half 
where they're a quarter Japanese and three quarters white. My husband is half Japanese and half white, and everyone thinks he's Mexican. No one can figure <laughs> out what the hell he is. Yeah. And, they're, and they, they don't know how to ask, you know. And my world is becoming, and I see the world around me with half a children and half this and half that, becoming much more mixed up than what it was. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that makes me happy. And I want to go to that. I want to go to that reality of mess, of, of confusion, and, and I'm not quite sure what it is rather than the hegemony of black claims or hegemony of white claims. Mm-hmm. I want it to be Egypt is in Africa. These are people of color. And within our, and then if we insert them into the American system, if these people were somehow transported in a time machine and brought to the United States, then they would be considered people of color mm-hmm. and, and have to deal with all of the social inequalities that that entails. So that's the way that that I like to look at it. And I don't want to discount the Afrocentrist voice because pushing against power is is claiming power. But I'm in the middle of it and and I find myself more of a an arbiter I suppose, not between the two sides because I do favor the Afrocentrist side more. Um but I don't want to I mean, I, I don't even know if one can use the word blackwash. That's a ridiculous, I mean, it's a, it's a I don't want to do that either, um, to claim it in a counterclaim, because then we're just doing, do you know what that is to me? Hmm. It's like, you, you're a Jewish people who's been destroyed through the Holocaust, and then you create the state of Israel, and you destroy Palestinians in much the same way with occupation, and hmm. being second-class citizens. And I would rather not repeat the sins of the fathers. I would rather not counter hegemony with hegemony, but counter hegemony with nuance and discussion and emotion and and movement. Well I think that with that with, with that discussion it's not necessarily countering with another. It's just going over the truth. And so yeah. what is what is the truth? Are they are they European or are they African? Are they you know are they dark skinned? Are they light skinned? You know, obviously, like with the with the paintings that we see and on the walls, the it's brown. Yes, 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 yes <laughs> for yes, sure, yeah. for sure, yeah, yeah. 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 And so, yeah, but the answer with Egypt is a very complicated one because yeah. you are going to find West Asian genetic markers. For sure, and you're going to find European genetic markers. And if we did a mummy analysis of all the mummies, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and it would be as complicated then, likely as it is now. Right. And, you know, you have the influx at the Bronze Age collapse in 1200 BC. The world fell apart. Mm-hmm. And that's the time period I study. And tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people made their way around the Mediterranean from Europe, from Greece, and swept around the Mediterranean. Mycenaean cities fall. Hittite Empire falls. They settle along the, the West Asian coast of the Mediterranean, and they settle in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And they insert a European phenotype into into the genetic stream of things. So it's, you know, and that happened in 1200. Well, how, how am I, is that European? Is it not? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's a mess, but I go back to this. It matters for Americans and it matters for our racial politics. Mm-hmm. And my short answer is always, if an ancient Egyptian found him or herself in Alabama in 1954, they would have had to sit the back. The bus. That's a fact. So yeah, that's yeah, a fact. That's the fact. That's the fact. Yep, there's that's no, a fact. There's no disputing that one. For sure. Now, what what place? Because this has been disputed 
or had, as I guess I should say, it's just been brought up to me and uh, I had never heard it before. So I'll ask you just a question. What is what place on the planet has the highest concentration of pyramids? Oh, you know, I haven't counted them, so I don't know if mm. it's Mesoamerica or Egypt mm-hmm. or some place that has Buddhist stupas, because we could potentially count those as pyramids. Mm. Um, and and I may have to make this my last question as I head off. Sure, no problem, no problem. I mean, I'm so sorry. Let me see what. No, we got like two yeah, minutes. No, okay. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, because I have an 11:30, so we're good. For sure. Um, uh, Egypt has the highest concentration of straight-sided pyramids, mm-hmm. so I can say that for certain because Egypt is the only one that invented and maintained the straight-sided pyramid, and there are dozens and dozens of them. So not the, not Sudan or Nubia or Kush, nothing like that. Oh, oh, oh! Sorry. In terms of numbers and and um, no Sudan and Maroe, they, mm-hmm. no, they're going to win in terms of numbers. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Okay. You're right. So who? So what? What? What came first, the pyramid in in the Sudan, or was it Egypt? Who? Egypt. Egypt was first ones. Okay. But but they introduced this thing called the Ben Ben Stone, and the Ben Ben Stone could very easily find its origins, though it's maintained at the city of Heliopolis in the north. There is argument that this stone found its origins in the south. That it mm. could have been a granite stone. That it could have maybe not a Sudanese origin, but a, a southern Nubian origin but no one's found the ben ben and we don't expect to be able to do that mm-hmm. um in terms so when one is talking about a pyramid you know i think of a big um pyramid um larger variety maybe larger than the the pyramids of sudan um, nubia and Meroe. Mm-hmm. but you're right in terms of sheer numbers yeah in straight sides they're going to win for yeah. sure yeah. yeah awesome yeah kara i think we're out of time yeah, but I, 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 gotta, I gotta go solve the problems of the world. For sure, I, I, I appreciate every minute. And um, you had great questions. Your audience had great questions. It was really, really fun to engage in these more political discussions. I love doing it, and people are often afraid to ask these questions, and so they don't. And I love grappling with this stuff. It's yes. so much fun. And so thank, thank you for you. answering them so well and so honestly, because a lot of people try to hide and. Be overly political, but I I know just based upon what I've seen from you know the interviews that you've done and just me talking to you briefly when I met you, you're not that type of person. So I appreciate that for sure. My pleasure, my pleasure. So let me know what the what the fallout is from my, my interview. Yeah, I'll connect. yeah I'll hit you via email. So <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All right, well you have so a great much. rest of your day. Yep. You too. Take All right, care. take care. Bye bye. But it's always lovely to see you, Karakuna. Everybody, we'll be right back with Jeff Keith. y'all this is emmanuel hopping back in real quick if you have not already done so follow kara on facebook kara cooney egyptologist on instagram just her first and last name kara cooney k-a-r-a-c-o-o-n-e-y and if you haven't already done so follow me on twitter and instagram the show page is just the letters s-x s-n-d-l-s so sierra x-ray sierra november delta lima sierra or you can follow my personal instagram my government emmanuel since 85 e-m-m-a-n-u-e-l s-i-n-c-e 
all right and we're done it's a wrap i will holla at y'all next week grace and peace